0: Hello, I'm Felix, and welcome to You Gotta Hack That, the podcast all about the security behind the Internet of Things. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about RFID door locks. All right, so to get started with this topic, I'm just gonna clarify exactly what I mean by RFID door locks, because there's quite a lot in this modern door locks sort of space, I guess. Uh, that, That includes, Everything that's classed as digital door locks, uh, and that means things like those mechanical push-button number locks that you talk, you might well have seen. They've been around for donkeys, not very exciting from a cyber point of view. Um, but there's also loads of other electronic digital door locks like mic stripe ones, pin-based ones, Bluetooth ones, app ones, Wi-Fi connected ones, NFC ones on your smartphone, and so on. There's loads. Today, we're talking exclusively about RFID door locks. There's a couple different types of RFID, uh, sort of general principle stuff. So um, high frequency versus low frequency is one of the things you should probably be aware of. Uh, high frequency means three to thirty megahertz, and this is about the uh, the radio frequency that they use to communicate. Whereas the low frequency stuff is thirty to three hundred kilohertz. Now. Some people think that the low-frequency stuff is older and is, is kind of not the current tech, and and there's some truth to that. However, there's a little bit of knowledge around uh, the placement of the device. So if you're underwater, say, you might well choose to go with the, the low-frequency stuff because it's more likely to work properly than the high-frequency stuff. You can still buy the low-frequency stuff. There's a company called HID, and they have a, a product series called the iClass, and that's is basically what you can get these days there's there's all the manufacturers but that's kind of the big name the devices themselves have uh you know a few different aspects that apply to security Um, and the kind of the biggest one is about the resource constrainedness of them now that's not a real word but it basically what i'm trying to get at is the fact that these things are so incredibly small when it comes to the the key cards themselves so the amount of computation power that they've got is is pretty limited um, now, if you think about it, that's obvious because the key card is physically very small. It's flimsy. It's, you know, it's in a very thin bit of plastic, and, and that's it. So there's got to be enough space in there for the, the, the signal to be generated by the coil, uh, which is the, the antenna inside the, uh, inside the card. And then there's a bit of electronics that does the, well, what signal am I sending? And that's it. There's no battery. There's no nothing else. Um, that's basically all you've got. Whereas the door locks are a bit more robust. They have um, more components to them. They've got a casing and that kind of thing. And we'll see in a minute why that's important. The door locks might well have a battery. Uh, if they're particularly big door locks for, you know, high throughput areas, there might well be a, a mains connected one. And certainly if you see uh, like barriers at the reception of big buildings, they tend to be mains connected because they have so much footfall and they've got you know, big moving parts and and that kind of thing, that you require a bit more power than you could have with a few AAA batteries. Again, both of those have impacts about how these devices are going to perform, whether or not they're going to uh, have resource-constrained qualities which then impact on other things like cryptography. When most people think about RFID door locks, they probably think about the sort where you have a card that swipes against uh, a door lock sensor and uh, and most people these days are used to or most familiar with the high-frequency stuff, and that's because that's the most common implementation. And this, this stems back all the way to the London Underground. Um, so they used a particular type of high-frequency card, which I think is still in use now, but they... Um, uh, but this this particular tech is is really really prevalent and has been around for donkeys. So that tech, in particular with the London Underground, but it's used in lots of other places, um is a, a chip on inside a, a little flexible card which is called MyFair Classic, and it's by a company called NXP originally. They also do MyFair Desfire and and various other bits and pieces. There's I guess a few different qualities that are interesting though um, the, the card themselves have uh, a little bit of memory on them so uh, the smallest you tend to get is 1k uh, 1 kilobyte of memory but you can also get 2k and 4k cards and that's about the amount of data that you want to store on there whether that be cryptographic keys or whether it's about information about the user you know maybe you have a picture of their face on there or something like that. There's also what appears to be evolutions, and they're called EV1, EV2, and EV3, and uh, and they tend to mean that, you know, the earlier ones, EV1, uh, have very little in the way of security functionality, but the EV3 is, is pretty good. As a kind of general understanding of how this sort of thing works, there's quite a lot of uh, variants here, but in principle, what you need to think of is that the, the card holds a bit of information, which it transfers over to the lock. And the lock has the responsibility for verifying that that is correct and therefore let you in or, or not, as the case may be. That verification process will be in a few different formats. And, and this is quite important to understand because it might well be able to do the verification on its own because that's all that it was required, or it might need to do a lookup against a, a management server. Somewhere else. Alright, so in brief, I'm going to talk a little bit about why bother attacking these things. And I, I think this is probably one of the more obvious types, um, because well, locks are there to stop people from gaining access, or perhaps you know, other types of activity, uh, like going through the London Underground, you might well be able to get a free ride or something like that. So gaining access is, is kind of is obvious, it's kind of clear. But there's also some other edge cases as well. So things like denying access to somebody, um, doing ransomware against the system to deny lots of people against the, to, you know, access the system, or access the, the resource behind the door lock. Um, then there's other slightly more edge case ones which are tracking people or assets you know if you know that a particular person has a particular card in their wallet then you might well be able to find a way of tracking them around the world or tracking around a building Um, and then there's the potential to change the RFID data in a card uh, or in an asset Um, and the best Thing I could think of for this would be uh, around cattle and, and livestock. Is you know, like your pets have microchips in their neck to to make sure that if they uh, get lost, then someone can return them. Well, the same can apply for cattle. Um, and so, if you've got RFID chips in their necks and you change the data that's on there, does that then imply that that cattle now, as far as the registration is concerned, belongs to somebody else? It's kind of an interesting sort of uh, edge case. I actually don't know whether the stuff in cattle ever get used in terms of uh like door locks and, and access control stuff so that'd be kind of interesting to find out if anybody knows i do know that my cats have their microchips in their necks and they uh, have microchipped pet doors so you can't get in unless you have the correct microchip um it's almost certainly not uh you know bulletproof as far as security is concerned but it works for my cats they're not clever enough to do hacking yet I'm going to come back to gaining access in a minute because there's quite a lot of uh, of detail here that we can talk about. However, just as really high level things, there's there's a difference between gaining access as far as the attacker is concerned because it depends on what you've got access to. Now, if you've got access to a card but not the lock at the moment, then you can do exercises against that card to therefore be able to, to do something like clone it or, or, or whatever. But if you've got access to the lock but not the card, there's other types of attacks you can do. And then again, if you've got both the card and the lock, then you might well be able to find even more stuff you can do against it. Um, there's al- also things like the the coordination service or the server that's in the background here. If, if I can attack that, say there's a web application there and I can get a, a SQL injection or something and therefore be able to You know, make my own cards or change the permissions on an existing card. Then maybe I don't even need to attack the lock. There's also the potential for the lock to talk back to that centralized server over Ethernet over a cable. So there's communication there that's potentially tamperable, or you know, over another RF capability. So uh, there might well be a Zigbee backhaul to the server, such that you can have a massive mesh of of, uh, of door locks. Not all door locks work the same, so it's really important to recognize that at this point. Denying access. Okay, really briefly... Triggering lockout conditions is one of the things that I came up with when I was thinking about this, and I was conscious that there's, you know, not much research done in this space. But if I were trying to work out a way of doing it, then maybe that's what I would try and do. Um, Similarly, you could look at breaking the card or breaking the lock by, I don't know, overloading the RF antenna so that it burns out, or trying to get some way of uh, corrupting the the firmware on the lock, or uh, you know, maybe even just the runtime so it, it crashes. There's an example, though, of some ransomware that was done. Uh, back in January 2017, a, a hotel was ransomwared, uh, and there was loads made about this in the news because I think because it was the first public incident involving IoT and ransomware. Um, and the message, the headlines that got out there was that you know this, this hotel couldn't use its door locks anymore because of the ransomware. And strictly speaking, that wasn't actually true. Um, the first thing that kind of came out about a month later was that nobody was actually trapped in or out of any rooms. Um, and it was for only one day. And the electronic key cards that were already present, they carried on working because they're, they're semi-autonomous. they just get on with it. It was the creation of new key cards that was a problem. And even then, I think they used their, their master cards to let people in and out so that it wasn't a problem because obviously those master cards pre-existed. They didn't need to worry about this. And when you look a little bit further, it turns out that this was a fairly broad ransomware. It wasn't targeted against the IoT system. It was against uh, the key and lock management system, for sure. But it was also against the reservation system and the cash desk system. So clearly, not quite as targeted as would make really good headlines. All right, so gaining access. uh, And I'm going to start with the card-facing attacks that you can do. when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about cloning the card. So that means copying the cryptographic material from one card and then using it somewhere else, either in a brand new card or, you know, in a device or something like that. And specifically, I'm going to talk about the MyFair Classic cards because they have had a load of research done against them. Now, the people who are in this industry will know that this is a little bit old hat because MyFair Classic attacks have been around for donkeys. However, the principles here really do apply uh, as far as kind of the wider learning is concerned. When classic was designed, it had an online brute force capability of resisting it for 44,000 years. Now, online brute forcing is where you try every single combination until you find the one that's correct, and 44,000 years is longer than my patience, so I think we're good there. However, it's possible to do offline brute force attacks as well, and it was estimated a few years ago that if you had the relevant bits of material, so this is communication, then you could probably do an offline Crack of the communication for these MyFair Classics in about an hour, so long as you've got the right conditions, and this means the right equipment, right input data, and, and so on. That's largely because the cryptographic material within MyFair Classic is pr- protected by a forty-eight bit cipher. Forty-eight bits was considered bad in the mid '90s, so you can imagine in 2023 we're looking, you know, at, at this being quite easy and, and not very good. There's also other failures here in the implementation of the uh, the protocol, the design of the protocol. So there's RNG failures, and RNG is random number generator. Um, and the random number generator is really important when it comes to crypto because if it can't produce numbers that you can't predict, then the, basically the crypto fails really quickly. Um, so um, and in this instance, that meant that there was predictable nonces. I don't mean nonces in another sense of the word. Don't go Googling that one. I'm not safe for work. However, um, in this instance num- nonces mean number used once the number used once is literally what happens at the very very beginning uh, of a uh, a transaction you need a number to kind of start it all off and that's where uh the the predictability is quite important because if it is predictable then suddenly you can't do anything reliably against that cryptography there was also another failure in terms of the design of this, which is encrypted parity bits. So parity bits are there to make sure that the communication happened correctly, and that's that's normal. However, most of the time they're on the outside of any cryptographic material because what you want is to prove the communication worked correctly, not that the encryption worked correctly. The fact that they were on the inside and that this protocol is a little bit manipulated, but uh, manipulatable rather, cool, that's a hard word. Uh, what that means is that the um, if you can manipulate the result of the parity bit when you're being uh, sent communication then you can kind of guess what the real bit should have been even though it's inside cryptography and that's a a form of plain text attack against crypto there's also two named attacks and i've got to be honest i don't fully follow how these work because they're quite complex however the two named ones are the nested auth attack and the dark side attack nested auth is about the fact that it's a predictable internal state within the card so that that means in practice that if you've got a state and you know exactly what happened before it you can kind of reverse that those steps to understand what the the state of the inside of that little uh, key card was and as it happens, the key card starts with the secret key as the, the first state. So if you can reverse it, then you can work out what that secret key is, and therefore you can do stuff like clone the card or, or reproduce it somewhere else. The dark side attack is slightly different, and that's because what you do is you send it a message um, and the key card responds only under certain circumstances. Uh, And that means basically that the message is syntactically correct and and all that kind of stuff is is good. However, if you can send it a message that is uh, not going to be authorized then it sends an error message back saying you're not authorized and that message back is is a known thing but for some reason it's sent back inside the cryptography so the same sort of concept as the uh, the encrypted parity bits however against an error message which means you can therefore extract more bits of key um, now none of these get the entire key out but what this does mean is you shorten the key or you discover information about the key and therefore you make the cryptanalysis the brute forcing process much easier because because you say half the length of the key and therefore it only takes a short amount of time rather than a long amount of time there's also other flaws here which are uh, unfortunate because they are about the implementation rather than the design of the protocol so for instance what you can find often is that there's common keys out there that get used rather than uh, keys that are you know randomly generated and therefore difficult to come up with there's also another flaw where if you've got a key card and you've got a lock and you capture the communication between a real key card and a real lock or genuine ones then what you can do is you can reverse engineer what happened in that process because the crypto one algorithm which is used to protect that communication is fully publicly known Uh, that's been known for quite a few years it was discovered or reverse engineered rather by some engineers um, uh, by some researchers and they uh, they published it after a bit of a, a core battle so lock facing is a little less well researched because everyone wants to you know think about how they could clone a card rather than force a lock to to break um i guess from headlines though there's some similar themes going on here so fail open is a concern um if i can get it to fail open which is the default in most of the world because um you don't want people locked in rooms and what have you so if i'm thinking about it if it's battery driven and all I want to do is consume that battery. Then maybe all I need to do is send it loads of different requests for loads of different cards, and then eventually the battery will die, and maybe, depending on the lock, it will fail open, and therefore I'll be able to open the door and and get on with things. Um, In principle, that's not a bad idea, but it may well change depending on the implementation. And a similar concept is maybe I can look at uh, corrupting the execution of the, the software inside that lock. So either by finding some form of buffer overflow or exploiting a memory leak so that it crashes once the memory is consumed or something else. And then hopefully the fail-safe mechanism will work and I'd be able to open the door again. Again, this is going to vary significantly depending on the the model of lock and the, the manufacturer's processes. Clearly there's also other stuff around key impersonation and uh, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into this, including like timing attacks, um, where you, uh, you can like detect whether or not the lock thinks you're closer or not to, uh, a, a correct cryptographic key because there's a slight delay in processing and therefore you can measure that even though it's in tiny, tiny amounts of time and be able to go, well, actually that that's probably a one and not a zero in that bit of the key, um and therefore you slowly gain more and more information about what the the key is in the background. That's, again, going to vary significantly depending on the model. You also need to think about the number of keys that are enabled on that lock. Um, So if that lock has lots of keys registered, then the chances of me being able to brute force it are much easier because there's more keys, if that makes sense. Brute forcing is still a thing. Common keys is still a thing when it comes to lock-facing attacks. Um, Those, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're, just on one side of that transaction or not if they're there they're a problem Um, and then there's also kind of key problems which are the fact that the the protocol tries to determine that it is close to the lock so therefore you can't just manipulate it now there are attacks against this which are difficult because um, you have to have two attackers and one say has to follow you around a supermarket and another has to find your car in the car park but you can relay some of that stuff and so in short what do i think sensors in this instance i think could be quite a serious liability uh, the implementation must be worth the risk and that's because there's quite a lot of attacks against it and it's not that easy to get right there are clearly if you if you've got good quality locks then uh, and and key cards then then that makes it much more difficult but it doesn't make it impossible so Where it's appropriate, this should be used, but probably think about it twice. Uh, So key management is the biggest benefit of this, and that is basically where you can um, uh, turn off keys without the key being present. So if you've got an employee who goes off in a huff and then doesn't come back again, well, you don't have to worry about it because you've turned the key off there's also other circumstances where you can transfer the risk to say an insurer and therefore you don't need to care about it too much and that really applies to things like cars rather than office buildings because i'm not sure how well that would work all right thanks for listening i hope you've enjoyed the show today please give the show a rating or review in your podcast app tweet about it post it on linkedin whatever whatever you do tag us in it please we would really appreciate whatever you do to talk to us about any aspect of the show, uh, suggest a future topic, or to ask a question about IoT security, please get in touch. You can do that via email on helpme at yg.ht or with at gotta underscore hack via Twitter, or you can search for You Gotta Hack That on LinkedIn.